Ezekiel, the 21st chapter. We still have a few more chapters to go before, Israel, uh, before Jerusalem comes under siege. It will come under siege in the ninth year. We are in the seventh year of the, of the king. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. Now the last verse we had in the previous one last, last Wednesday, we saw that, the, that Ezekiel was complaining that the people weren't taking him serious because of all the figurative language and parables and such. So you will notice that in this particular chapter there is no figurative language and there are no parables and there are no allegories and no stories about uh, vines and such things. And you get a pretty much a direct word. I heard someone say, be careful what you wish for. You may not like it. They may have preferred the flowery language more than the direct language that they're going to get here in this, this chapter. But he says, Son of man, set your face toward Jer- Jerusalem. I'm not sure if I went over this with you before, but that term, set your face, is a, pretty much an Ezekiel term. It's used 11 times in the Bible, all in Ezekiel. Six times it's used as Son of Man, set your face against. And five times it said, says, set your face toward. And that's the 11 times that it's, that it's there. I have seen other numbers published. Um, someone came up with the number of nine. I don't know where they came up with those numbers. I did the search on it myself and I came up with 11. But this is the sixth time that this command has been used to, and every time that this command is given to him, it is to prophesy judgment. There's a New Testament parallel that we can find in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, where it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's about as close as we can come to it. And when, once he got to Jerusalem, after he set his face to go, you'll see the judgment side of, of Jesus come out. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation." That's pretty similar to what Ezekiel is telling them, isn't it? In Luke chapter 21, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for they will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We'll get on back over here to Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 3. And say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you, therefore my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Then all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath 
it shall not return anymore. In the last chapter, he was to set his face south, which would include the land as well as Jerusalem. This one, he is, he is told, set your face toward Jerusalem. So this is specifically against the city, but it will also come down upon the land as well. But the Lord is saying, I am against you. I will draw out my sword. Now in this chapter, we find out that the sword of God here is Babylon. They are the sword. He says, I will take it out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked. Now, in one of the previous chapters, when he was going over some of that figurative language, he talked about sour grapes and he said he wouldn't, he wouldn't punish the wicked and the righteous. That the, each one would pay for their own sins. But apparently, they're not going to be punished for the sins of the, of the, of the, uh, sinners. But there is some suffering that they go through. So, it's not uncommon for people to suffer, righteous to suffer because of the wicked, but they will not be punished. Now, for some people, they'll say that's not much of a difference, but apparently to God it is. So for him, punishment is going to be more of an eternal thing and have uh, implications into the next life, whereas suffering is just this life here. And that's why God would see such so much of a difference in it. But he's saying right here, we're going to cut off both righteous and wicked from you. And those that have any righteousness left in them at all are the ones that are going to be taken into exile. It's the wicked that are going to be left behind. Can you imagine being in a land, all the righteous people are now gone? That's about as close to the tribulation as you're going to get. Um, let's see, I think we have uh, one, one reference for you over in Isaiah, chapter 57. Actually, a couple of references here for you. Sometimes the righteous die sparing them from the evil that is to come. In Isaiah 57, the righteous perish and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. So just because the, the righteous are taken off the earth doesn't mean necessarily a bad thing. They may have been spared from something far worse. One translation, translation put that same verse this way. No one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. In 2 Kings 22 and verse 20, Surely therefore I will gather you, speaking of Josiah, to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. So he's telling Josiah, Josiah, when you're going to die, and you're not going to see any of this stuff happen. So his death would keep him from seeing all this evil that would come upon him. Now it said that God's sword will not return to its sheath, so it's not going to be stopped. He's going to keep on going until everything is destroyed. I wonder what they're thinking of that clear language now. In Ezekiel 21 verse 6, Sigh therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. And it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing, that you shall answer. Because of the news, when it comes, every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will be faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming, and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord God. So he is uh, not supposed to hide his grief. And he probably does feel a lot of grief that the people of Israel had a lot of love for their home, their city, the temple. And Ezekiel doesn't seem to be far from that. So he is prophesying of its destruction, possibly even seeing its destruction. And God says, don't hide back all that grief you're feeling. Let it out. Let them see it. Now, contrast this to a verse in uh, some verses in the future. They're not coming here yet. 
but we will see these. He will be given a word from God that his wife is going to die and that he is not to mourn. And sure enough, that night, his wife died. And the next day, he didn't mourn. And the people came to him and said, tell us, what is this? What's this about? And so then he was supposed to, to tell them that uh, basically God's not mourning either. But he says, sigh. Don't, just, don't walk around and hide this stuff in there. We want you to let out one of those sighs. And you hear somebody let out a sigh like this. He said, oh man, they're sad. And that's what he's going to be doing. Sigh with bitterness before their eyes. Let them see it. And they're going to say, why are you sighing? In verse 8, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Say, a, a sword a sword is sharpened and also polished. Sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? It dis- despises the scepter of my son, as it does all wood. Now, this is kind of a puzzling couple of verses here. He said, first off, the sword is sharpened. Now, if you're going to go into battle, of course you're going to sharpen the sword. But apparently they did a lot of polishing on them too. They wanted them to gleam, just to be real, real, real shiny. So if you start off the battle and you have some sunlight, it could bounce off of your nice shiny sword. Uh, once you got into the battle, that didn't happen. It was covered with blood and you know, it was no longer polished. But you would start it off that way. And so this is one of the things they would do to get ready. Sharpen it, polish it. He said, it's going to be a dreadful slaughter. We want those things to flash like lightning, he puts in here. But now take a look at this. Should we then make mirth? Now, that word means to be glad, basically greatly glad, be joyful, or to make mirth. That word, that word doesn't mean anything to me, mirth. I don't know if it does to you, but it doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> but uh, rejoice is what they're saying. So he says, shall we then make, make for joy? Shall we then be glad? And of course the answer would be no. But take a look at this verse. This is very puzzling. I'm going to give you a couple of ways that this is probably meant. I, I pretty much think it means one thing. There are some other ideas of this. But it despises the scepter of my son as it does all wood. So the scepter is related to here to a, to a piece of wood. And it says this, the sword of Babylon, the sword of God coming through, it will despise the scepter of my son as it does all, all wood. Now that word there, my son, is capitalized. I don't know the, the Hebrew well enough to know if there's something in there to, to denote that it should be capitalized. But it is probably referring to the Davidic line. To the, to the kingdom of David. The, that he was king and he had a scepter. And of course, once the scepter came to Judah, the word of God says that the scepter would never leave Judah. And it would it stayed with, with David up until the time that Babylon overthrew them. And then they had no king. And then Jesus would come along and he would take the kingship up again. And it would still stay in the tribe of Judah. So this is going to come through and it's, it's going to despise the scepter of my son. So it probably is referring to here the scepter or the house where the scepter is of the Messiah, which would be the Davidic line. And so it's not going to uh, honor the Davidic line, even though it is a line of, of God's king that is to be coming. 
It's going to treat it basically like it would any other scepter or any other piece of wood. The New Century Version has a rendition of this verse. And I think, I, I read the New Century every once in a while because I like sometimes how they do it. They miss this so bad. <laughs> I just wanted to see that there, there are some other ways to look at this. It is made sharp for the killing. It is polished to flash like lightning. You are not happy about this horrible punishment by the sword. Now, there is a little better interpretation of the word mirth. But then look at this. But my son Judah, you did not change when you were only beaten with a rod. Now, that is completely different from from anything else that I've... I've not found anything else that is even close to, to that type of an interpretation. But it sure seems like they got it wrong. So it would seem to indicate that this is the scepter of the, the royal Davidic line. And it did not spare the sword to treat it any different than either common wood or any other king. And he just came in and, and uh, took that scepter away. Verse 11. And he has given it to be polished that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and it is polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry and wail, son of man, for it will be against my people, against all the princes of Israel. Terrors including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh, because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter shall be no more, says the Lord God. So again, this is coming back to that same uh, verse in verse 10, that the the scepter, the ruling uh, Davidic line, is going to be stopped. You, therefore, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. The third time... Let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays, the sword that slays the great men that enters their private chambers. If you look at some translations, if you, if you like to, to read different ones, you'll see that sometimes they interpret this as two, three times. You know, sometimes uh, the prophets would say three times and four. And they would just uh, repeat a, a number by increasing it by one. And they, uh, some translations treat this verse the same way. But it seems to be the reference is to a a third hit. The third time let the sword do double damage. And of course we know from the history we've already covered that there were three strikes that Babylon did with Jerusalem. The first was in 605 B.C. during the reign of Jehoiakim. The second was in 597 during the reign of Jehoiachin. And the third was in 586 during the reign of Zedekiah. But the third one is where the city came down they burned the temple, they tore down the walls, and they uh, left the place in ruins. The first two, they didn't do that to it. But the third time, uh, they came out get much, much stronger. Verse 15, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates. This could mean that he knows where all the weak points are in the gate, and he's going to point the sword right at it. So those gates are coming down. That the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright. It is grasped. For slaughter, swords at the ready. Thrust right, set your blade, thrust left. Whatever your edge is ordered, wherever your edge is ordered. I also will beat my fist together and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there is an end to this. He's going to have them going through and they're just going to be knocking the gates down, knocking the walls down, slaughtering people. And of course, he's been telling them for chapters, many, many chapters here, that uh, many were going to be dying by the sword. He did promise them that, told them that, warned them about that. This is what's coming. And this is just another 
another way of, of um, reiterating that. But God is saying, Babylon is the, my sword. They're the ones that are coming through. So all these prophets that are saying Babylon is not coming, that they're going to fall. And you remember they just lost that battle that they had to the Egyptians. But they are going to recover from that and they are going to come back. Verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, And son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign. Put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah and to fortify Jerusalem. So he is to make a road. I don't know how big the road has to be, but it, uh, it's going to be symbolic, of course. He's going to make a road, and at the end of the road, he's going to make a fork. One going one direction, one going another. He's going to make a sign. And on that sign, it's going to say, over here for the for uh, Ammon, and over here for uh, Israel. <laughs> so this is what we're going to do. And uh, he's, I guess he's going to act out as if he is the king of Babylon. And he's going to come to that fork in the road. Now, the reason that there's two of these, these two are put here is that Israel rebels against Babylon because of their alliance with Egypt, but they also pulled Ammon into it. Ammon has been under the king of Babylon. They don't want to be under the king of Babylon. And so they want to get free. Israel wants to get free. So they bonded together because, you know, even if you don't like them a whole lot, it's better to have them on your side than not. So the this is why when he's coming on down, he has both of these places in rebellion. And he's basically saying, which one should I go to first? You would think that a king of his stature would have made that decision before he came. I would have thought that. But apparently he did not. So he gets to the part of the road here in verse 21. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road at the fork of the two roads to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the images. He looks at the liver. Now how many of you would read that verse and say, what in the world is he saying? And skip, go on to the next verse. <laughs> just, just go on. I don't need to figure that out. Well, there are some interesting things from, from this. First off, he's going to use divination. He shakes the arrows. This is basically something that Israel did when they would, uh, the, the Urim and the Thummim, they would uh, toss these and they would basically give you a yes or no answer. But they would take these arrows, they would shake them and they would release them and then they would have a professional come in and read them. Kind of like tea leaves. You read it all the different directions that they're going. And this is one thing that you do. You'd shake the arrows and see what they what they did. He consults the images. And what he's talking about there is you go to the idols. That's not a surprise. Most of us would would expect that they would go to, to that. But this third one is interesting. He looks at the liver. <laughs> now that doesn't jump out at you as to what in the world they mean. What do you mean we look at the liver? This is the practice that started around this time. It may have started with the Babylonians. I can't trace it any earlier than the Babylonians. It may have been something that they picked up from some other place, but I cannot trace it any earlier than the Babylonians. It comes right around this, this time. It's when they would start it. What they would do is they would take a sacrificial animal. It would be a bird. It would be a sheep. It would be a goat. It'd be something like that. And they would take the, uh, as they sacrifice it, they would take the liver specifically. They would, uh, they would read some of the other organs too, but specifically they would pull out the, the liver. And you would have, of course, a professional do this, person who was trained in, in the art of reading the liver. And they would pull this liver out and they would look on it and it would tell you things about your decision and what you had to do. They would map it all out. 
and they would show the uh, the dignitary, the king, uh, what kind of decision they would make. Now, how many? This sounds like an absolutely ridiculous thing, to, and awfully involved, and you have to have a whole lot of trust in the people that are reading the liver. But this this practice went all the way through this particular empire, went into the next empire, the Persians. They uh, picked it up as well. It went into the Grecian Empire and the Greeks picked it up. It went into the Roman Empire and the Romans picked up this practice of reading the liver. It went into the Middle Ages. It was even picked up by some Christians. In fact, I I don't remember the, their names, but there was a couple people that are saints in the Catholic Church who, before making a decision, read the liver. There was one in particular, and I, I, I know him, but I was reading so much stuff, the name went out of my head, and I, I can't remember who he was. But um, if anybody's interested, I still have it over my other notes, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but there were some Christians who picked this, this kind of thing up, so it actually worked its way into the church. And they would read the liver. So as outlandish of a way as this would seem to be, it went all the way from the uh, around the 7th century, I guess, B.C., all the way up until the Middle Ages. That's a lot of years. And whether people continue to, to go on after that, I, I don't know. I saw that it was, uh, and that it continued until the Middle Ages. But uh, don't, I probably wouldn't be surprised if it made a comeback. Where people jump on things. But this is what he did. He's going to come to this road. And he's going to use his divination. He's going to shake the arrows. He's going to consult the images. And he's going to look at the liver. He's going to do all three. He's, he's not saying he's going to pick one of these. He's saying he's going to do all three. So he's going to have one group reading the livers and another group over here. And they're going to be shaking the arrows. And, uh, and then the other one, they're going to be asking the idols what they should do. And they're going to come up with a decision. And God's telling them the decision they're going to come up with is they're coming to get you. In his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem to set up Batter, battering rams to call for a slaughter to lift the voice with shouting and to set battering rams against the gates to heap up a siege mound and to build a wall. So he's saying this. He's going to come to this crossroads. He's not going to, he has not made a decision which way he's going to go. And he's going to decide at that crossroad. He's going to go through all this process. I'm telling you right now, the direction he's coming is your way. Now these three forms of, of uh, divination there's actually names for, for two of them. And I'll, I'll, I'll spell them for you just in case you want to go look them up. <laughs> the first one, the shaking of the arrows, is called Bellomancy. B-E-L-O-M-A-N-C-Y. That's the shaking of the arrows, let them fall, and you interpret the pattern. The consulting of images, the word there, images, is actually the word teraphim. And you probably have heard that term before for idols. And the final one that we spent a little more time on, the uh, examination of the, the liver, is hep, hepatoscopy. H-E-P-A-T-O-S-C-O-P-Y. H-E-P-A-T-O-S-C-O-P-Y. If you want to do any looking up and check into some of that. Verse 23. And it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them. But he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. 
Now, this is another verse that can kind of, you read it over and you think, all right, I'm not really quite sure what in the word he's saying here. It will be to them like a false divination in their eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them, but he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. I have a couple of uh, paraphrases from this. Uh, one, and this decision to come against Jerusalem will seem to the Judean false prophets to be a false divination contrary to Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar's best interest. These Judean false prophets have sworn oaths to to the Judean people that everything would work out all right for them. But God, through Babylon, will bring their iniquity, their lying to the people, etc., to remembrance. Here's another one. I, I kind of like the first one, but this decision to go against Jerusalem will seem to the Judeans to be a mistake for Nebuchadnezzar. Jude- the Judeans had sworn oaths to Nebuchadnezzar and didn't keep them, so the Babylonian will bring this faith, faithlessness to remembrance. So I tend to, to go with the, the first one. I think the false prophets are going to get involved in this. And when they see him at the crossroad or hear that he's at the crossroad, I imagine they're going to be making some prophecies of their own. Verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings your sins appear because you have come to remembrance and shall be shaken or taken in hand. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. This profane prince of Israel is Zedekiah. You know, God has probably the least amount of respect for him of the latter ones that that we've seen, he, he speaks of him in, the, in not very good terms. So therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered, and that you had transgressions, you didn't try and cover them up with the blood of bulls and goats, you desecrated the temple, you took away the sacrifices, the priest. So all of the things that you've done are there to be remembered because they hadn't gone through the process of the sacrifice so that their sins would not be remembered against them. They would, they would be covered. Because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And especially this, this wicked prince that is there. In verse 26, Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and the humble and humble the exalted. Again, that might be a little, uh, little blinding, but I think it's, it's really easy to clear this one up. This is what the Lord is saying. Remove the turban. This is the high priest. The high priest would have a turban. Take off the crown. That's, of course, the king. So the two main people in Israel, the high priest and the king, were taking them out. And those offices will no longer be inhabited. Nothing shall remain the same. You've had kings come before and they've conquered the place. Nebuchadnezzar has come twice before, but things still stayed the same. They still had their king. They still had things going on. They still had their city. But he says, not this time. This time, nothing is going to remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. So in other words, no one's going to be king anymore. There is no royal family. There is no high priest. There is no priest. Those that were once low we're going to be brought to the same place as those that were high. Verse 27, Overthrown, overthrown. I will make it overthrown. 
Well, three times he says it. You know, if God says something twice, but now it's three times. We've, we've seen in the New Testament, Jesus says, whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. We well, you know that's bad. But here you got it three times. Three times. Overthrown, overthrown. I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer. So Jerusalem is going down. It's going to fall apart. God is saying this as clearly as he possibly can. This place is going to be destroyed. Babylon is the one doing it. They're going to come to a crossroads. They're going to think about going over to Ammon. But they're going to say, nope, we're going to come here first. And they're going to be marching this way. And don't be thinking that you're going to have deliverance. That Egypt is going to come and help you out. That anything else is coming along. They're going to change their mind. That's not going to happen. It shall be, it shall be no longer the kingdom, Israel. It will be no longer until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. And of course we know who that he is. Because once Zedekiah is taken out and the, the line of David, the kingship in the line of David will not be held by any other person until Jesus comes. And Jesus is not going to be the king of Israel. He is the king of Israel now. He has received that throne. Remember all his parables. He was a king. He went to re receive a kingdom and then he comes back to this kingdom. So he is already the king, the king of Israel. A little bit prophetic when Pilate put that little sign up there. This is the king of the Jews. <laughs> yes, he is. Some people, there's actually songs that they sing in the Christian church that Jesus will be the king. He is the king. It's not that he will be. In Psalm 24, 8, I just put a little quote there from it. Who is the king of glory? You ought to know that from Handel's Messiah. They, 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 they sing that. Well, look at some of the, uh, the verses here that deal with that. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Psalm 2 and verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Of course, Jeremiah, he's over there in the homeland, preaching to the same uh, group of people, different different folks, but the same group that had all come out of there. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Once again, speaking of the Messiah, the the David's throne was established in the year 1047 B.C. The kingdom of Judah fell in 586 B.C., so that's around 461 years. Add Saul's reign in there, and you get somewhere around 500 years that uh, that, that king line had, a, or the, that the Israel had a king. 461 of those years were the Davidic line. This throne would be vacant for about 600 years until Jesus receives it. And Luke speaks of that. After the Babylonians, they came the Medes and the Persians. And they were still under them. And then came the Greeks. Under the Greeks, the Jewish people revolted during the Maccabean period. Their Maccabean rebellion. This eventually gave way to the first independent Jewish state that they had had since um, 
under, under the reign of the kings. And uh, not the last couple of kings that they had, but some, some kings before that, before Babylon had come and, and had conquered them. That independence only lasted for about 79 years because in 63 BC, the Romans under Pompey conquered Jerusalem. And once again, the Jews were under foreign dominance. So that was 63 years before Christ, but Christ was born about 3, year, three BC, I believe is the, is the where we have, have looked at that. So about 60 years before Christ, they lost their independence and they hadn't been independent until they were made a nation again now. And of course, they don't have a king right now. They have, a, they have elections and all that, but uh, they have not submitted to the king that they have. But they will eventually. Verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see false visions of you, while they divine a lie to you to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created, in the land of your nativity. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for their fire, for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land and you shall not be remembered for I, the Lord, have spoken. So he's basically saying, uh, Ammonites, don't think that you have been forgotten in this. We're coming for you too. He made a decision at the fork, but after they get done slaughtering all the people down in, in Judah, they're going to polish up their swords, they're going to sharpen them, and they're coming your way, and they're going to wipe you guys out. Because both of these nations had rebelled against them. So he's, uh, he's letting them know that they're coming. Now we're going to have more prophecies against about Ammon. He's coming up, um, but uh, not for a couple more chapters, but we'll see some more that will come. But if you can imagine this particular time, we saw that the attitude in the previous chapter was they were making fun of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was beginning to feel a little bit of that. Hey, you know, they're not taking me seriously because of all the figurative language, all the parables, so forth. So God left all the figurative language out of that and he gave it to him straight on this one. If you were one of the false prophets, they're going to they're gonna jump on this part of the fork in the road and they're going to be making prophecies that he is wrong and that when Babylon starts to come, they're going to say they're going to hit the fork of the road and they're going to go down to Ammon. That's the one that they're mad at. And, and God's going to deliver them and God's going to uh, keep them safe. And they're going to have words like this because they're going against the things of Ezekiel. This is what they do. Those that are false, like these false prophets are, they react to events and they see signs around them to verify the things that they speak. And this is what we see, of course, in our day today. We constantly see people that look around for signs and look around for events. And they try and make their prophecies that they have be um, uh, be verified by these signs. And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen a bun- bunch of different areas. Some of the things in, in global warming, we've, we point them out to you when they, when they come around. Um, you know, the, I don't know if you probably have seen this by now, but they used to have signs up in the 
areas of the glaciers. The, the warning people that these glaciers would disappear by the year 2020. Well, they had to go around and take all those signs out because the glaciers are still there. Now, they don't uh, look at that as a sign that they're wrong. They just say it's being delayed. Of course, the same things they prophesied in the 60s that didn't happen in the 10, 20 years they said it would. And the same thing they prophesied in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And then in the 2000s. And then even in, uh, they keep, you know, they keep putting it 10 years out, 20 years out, hoping that people will forget. And, uh, they keep pointing to things. Now they want to point to the forest fires in, uh, Australia as signs of global warming. Of course, the 40 or so people that have been arrested for setting the fires, they have nothing to do with it. <laughs> the, the fact that they didn't keep the forest up the way they, that they should have, that, that has nothing to do with it. It's, you'll point to things. If you have, uh, if they're pointing at global warming, then they point to any, any hot days that we have or any drought conditions. Well, this is proving it. If you have sudden cold, well, that doesn't prove anything. And this is why the, this is how you can tell who's false. Because we veer off of what we have said to, to adjust for the signs and the things that we're seeing around. Because we want these signs to point towards what we want to do. I still get amazed that people are convinced that the temperature of this earth is going to change by a couple of degrees. So let's go to Mars where the difference in temperature is several hundred degrees. I, I don't understand how that makes sense. How does that make sense to anybody? I, I, I don't understand how they can even even think of that in the in the least bit. They even made a movie about that. The guy's trying to survive up there on Mars by himself and uh, they showed how difficult it would be and how in just one quick swoop you can be near death's door. And I know lots of people went out to see that movie. But those that are false, they react to events and they see signs around them to verify what they speak. And they'll keep pointing to these things. This is going to be the Antichrist. He's going to be having lying signs and wonders. And so all this is getting people ready to see signs and interpret them the way people are, the way they're being told. This means global warming. This means climate change. This means economic disaster. It's amazing to me that there's people out there that are saying that for the boom that is going on in the economy in the United States, the stock market's soaring, unemployment going down, there's still people who want to point to things and say, well, look, it's all going to crash down. It's all going to go... It, it, they, they point to signs that it's, it's, it amazes me what they can do. And these same people, you know, like Pelosi, when unemployment was high, remember her term for it? She came up with a term for unemployment. When uh, she wanted a, a high unemployment to be a good thing, she called it fun employment, employment. Fun employment. What that meant was that you have time now for your hobbies. She actually, go back and, and look it up if you don't. If you don't remember, she called it fun and fun employment. That you can go out and you can do things, pursue your dream, do stuff that you wanted to do. Because now you got time for it, you don't have a job. <laughs> so, but but then when uh, when things are going going better, we like to point. Well, look at this over here, and look at this over here. This isn't going to last. And uh, you know these people aren't doing well, and uh, it just it just amazes me how people will do this. You can point to anything you want to as a sign. 
and you can make it look at whatever you want it to be. But those are the truth. We stay with the Word of God. Regardless of what the events, regardless of the signs that are going on around us. And this is what Ezekiel is trying to get these people to understand. I don't care what you see going on. I don't care if you see that Egypt just scored a victory over Babylon. Babylon is coming to get you. Babylon is going to destroy the city. He's not phased by it. He's not moved by what has gone on in the, on the reports. He stays right with the Word of God. And even in the area of global warming, we stay with the Word of God. The Word of God says that the end of this world is not going to be because of flooding, melting glaciers, excessive heat. Eventually, once the millennial reign is over, we're not going to have global warming, as uh, Brother Keith Moore put it. We're going to have global melting. It's going to melt the whole place down and start it all over again. But don't ever stray from the Word of God. Don't ever get to a place where you'll, you'll look at the signs. What has God said about your economy? You believe what God says about your economy. Not what the people in the news want you to believe. Not what politicians want you to believe about your economy. You believe what God said about your economy. What did God say about how you would be blessed? Well, those are the things that you believe. Yeah, but they're telling us that these things are going to... We don't need to hear that. I don't need to hang on to those things. What I hang on to is what the Word of God has said. And the Word of God has said that every foot that I... Every place that I put my foot is what? It's blessed. It's mine. I can, I can conquer where God tells me to go and to conquer. I can prosper where God tells me to go and prosper. It does not matter if there is drought all over. I can keep on going. As Psalm 91 puts it, a whole mess of people are going to die on this side. A whole mess of people are going to die on that side. It's all right. It's not going to come near you. I don't know, coming right to your right side, right to your left side. How many of you, that's kind of near. God says, oh, I didn't get near you at all. Don't worry about it. Stay with the truth. These false prophets are going to be looking at any event that would go on at this crossroads, at Babylon being dispatched and people beginning to become fearful. They're going to be saying, saying, you don't mess with this. They're going to come to that road and they're going to stop. And when they stop there, they're going to make a decision. And so the word will come. They came to that road and they made a stop because they're going to spend some time stopping there, apparently, according to Ezekiel. And they're going to um, decide. But Ezekiel's already telling them. This is uh, two years prior to it happening. Maybe even a little bit less than that. Maybe a year and a half. And he's going to say, they're coming. They're going to come to that crossroad. They're going to use these methods of divination. And they're going to come up with the idea that we're going to Jerusalem first. They're going to come here. They're going to lay siege to the city. They're going to knock down its gates. They're going to knock down its walls, burn the temple. They're going to kill a whole mess of people. He's warning them. But these folks are going to hang on to what these false prophets are going to say. We don't interpret the word in light of the events. We interpret events in light of the word. We always have to remember to do that. Because it's so easy for us to get steered off of it. We interpret the word in light of what the doctor has said. We interpret the Word of God in light of what the economists have said and what the stock market might be doing. We don't, we don't need to do any of that. 
we listen to what the Word of God says. What does the Word of God say for me? And I don't care what the lying signs and wonders are that are out there. I'm training myself not to listen to them. But the enemy is getting the world ready to change on a dime. That they can be looking at a strong economy and believe that everything is going to fall apart. This is all training ground. Because when we get into the end times, they need people to believe the lying signs and wonders. And for them to be able to say, these signs mean this. This means God is not around anymore. This means there is no God. This means that this guy here, he is God. This is what they want these signs to point to. They're getting people used to staring something in the face that is one way. And they're going to give them signs that it's something else. And they'll switch. This is all training ground. But we are not going to be so trained. Don't be pulled off onto these things. Know what the Word of God says and hang on to it. And don't let anybody steer you otherwise. Because they will try. Just like they're going to do here with Ezekiel. Ezekiel's telling them this ahead of time. These false prophets may not even know that this crossroad even exists. <laughs> that anything is going to become to this. But Ezekiel has said it. Now they're going to come up with other words and other things and people are going to give greater honor and, and listen more to what they say. Would you, can you imagine Ezekiel? Hey, I told you about that a year ago. And now you guys are coming out with this? That's not right. I told you a year ago, and this is how it's going to be. You watch. You're going to see. This is how it's going to be. I told you. They're coming this way. They're not going down the other direction. They're coming here. And he's going to stay with it, no matter what goes on. Even if they came back with a report, and somebody gave a false report and said, hey, they're heading down toward the Ammon. He's going to say, no, they aren't. He's going to, he has trained himself that whatever the word of God, God has said, that's what we stay with. And that's how we need to train ourselves on these things as well. But these people are not trained that way. These people are trained to go whatever way they want. And even the people down in Israel, they do the same thing. They came to Jeremiah and they said, Jeremiah, we've got a problem. And whatever God tells you to do, we'll do it. Ten days later, he came back and said, God said to do this. And he said, he didn't tell you that. They wanted to go down to Egypt. They already made their minds up about that. He said, don't go down to Egypt, but you've already made up your mind for that. And they did, and they picked him up, and they carried him with them. There'll be a whole lot of pressure to not stick with the things of God, to believe whatever lying signs and wonders they, they want to throw out there. But don't bite into them. Don't listen to them. Stay with what the Word of God says, and then your way will be successful. Father, I thank you that we can listen to the things that you have taught us, the enlightenment that you have given us, the words of prophecy that have told us what will be coming about. I thank you, Father, that we are not in this world and subject to the darkness that the world is. Father, our eyes are open and we can see clearly. It's hard sometimes for us to see people going in the way of destruction going in a way to follow after lying signs and wonders. But that's their choice. But we will not follow them. We will not feel pressure to go in their direction. We will stay with what the Word of God has told us. And I thank you, Father, for the boldness you give us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.